Okay. All right. One, two, three. Welcome to Enterprise Masters, a podcast from Wipro Ventures about enterprise software startups. Hello, I'm Bipla Badia, one of your hosts, along with my friend and business partner, Venu Pimaraj. We are excited to have Jay Leek with us today. Jay is the managing director and co-founder of Clear Sky Security and is one of the most thoughtful cybersecurity investors that we have met. Among his notable investments are companies like Verodin, Demister, Big ID, CyberGRX, Silence, and a whole bunch of other emerging category-leading startups in the cybersecurity domain. Prior to ClearSky, Jay was the CISO of Blackstone for close to five years and earlier in his career led the cybersecurity teams in organizations like Nokia and Equifax. Jay, you have an impressive background, of course, having run the cybersecurity teams of some very large organizations and being on boards and advising over two dozen startups. Curious to understand, how did your experience running security for such major corporations prepare you for life as a VC? Yeah, I mean, I had the very fortunate benefit of actually having a dual role when I was at Blackstone, where I was leading the early stage cybersecurity investing for Blackstone off the balance sheet, as well as being the CISO for the firm. And quite frankly, if I roll back the clock to my Nokia days in early 2000, I was working with the security business that was this nascent $400 million business inside of a $75 billion company where I was running corporate security there. I was working with them also thinking about a lot of their security strategies. So it's something I've been doing kind of for a long time. And I think it brought a competitive advantage whenever I was running security for Fortune 500 companies uh, to the table because I could bring early stage startups into my program and kind of never get ahead of the adversary, but maybe have a chance at competing with them a little bit because right. of the innovation that can happen in startups versus larger organizations. And now as a full-time VC, I kind of flipped the role. Yeah. Having bought $250 million of security technologies and deployed most of it successfully, but plenty <laughs> yeah. of scar tissue along with even some success yeah. over the years, you can really understand the challenges that security officers, security practitioners are going to have when they go to deploy new technologies and startups. And a lot of times it's not just about the technology itself. It's the rub with the IT department, with the infrastructure team, the DevOps team, your HR compliance folks. Yeah. Having negotiated with these guys and worked with all these people for 17 years of my career, we can really help advise startups what are the hot spots and the rubs and things of that nature that you're going to experience whenever they're thinking about onboarding some new startup company. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly my next question. Having been on the CISO hot seat for a long period in your career, can you share what the life of a CISO is today? On one hand, the number of threats and vulnerabilities keep increasing. On the other hand, solutions to address them are also proliferating. So how does a CISO keep their head above water? Yeah, I mean, uh, the life of a CISO has changed dramatically over the past 10 years. Mm. I mean, I think you'd probably be hard-pressed to find any large organization that doesn't truly think of the CISO as an executive in the leadership team of some form of fashion today. Every CISO is reporting to the board once, twice, four times a year. They're having one-on-ones with their GCs. They're having one-on-ones with their CEOs. They're truly thought of as a business leader. At the end of the day, the fight that you're fighting, though, is deep in the technical weeds also. And so you're managing really, really technical geeky, if you will, mm. teams, mm. as well as very business-oriented teams. So I think you got a difficult job as a CISO, and I hope that it's they're less and less on the chopping block mm-hmm. when something happens, mm. and more and more thought of as the go-to person that's going to persevere and get us through a challenging situation when something happens. So while I came from a network engineering background and was very technical, haven't 
no one would let me touch a keyboard today, that's for sure, for the past <laughs> 10 years. Fewer and fewer security officers are like the former firewall administrator turned CISO. You know what I mean? You saw that maybe 10 years ago. And those, if those guys or those gals are in the seat today, it's because they've evolved. Mm. And they've turned into truly a, a business-oriented leader mm. that hopefully just happens to have good technical roots, which is how I like to think of myself. But I probably think of myself as more technical today than I really am. So. <laughs> and the other part of the question is, at least from an investor standpoint, when you look at cybersecurity as a landscape, you get the chart that you can't have your eyes on for too long, right? At least the latest count was what, 1,000, 2,000 companies? 3,500 is what okay. we say. All right. Okay. So how does the CISO keep track of them and what do they do in terms of prioritization? I have no idea how an investor keeps track of them. <laughs> Forget a CISO, actually. But we do have a framework that we've adopted inside of ClearSky that we advise other CISOs actually on how to think about the market. In fact, I was just with two Fortune 500 CISOs yesterday and their teams, and we were, we were doing a ClearSky portfolio review, and we mapped this out for them. You know, It's like 3,500 companies out there, plus or minus 500. I don't think anybody will argue with that number, most likely. I wish it was 1,000 or 2,000, but I will tell you, <laughs> just to digress for two seconds, this will date me. Information Security Magazine, which hasn't existed in forever, published an article in February 2002, talked about 1,200 security companies back then. So we've had an excessive amount of security companies and growing ever since. So yeah. I don't think it's gonna change anytime soon. Mm. And as long as investors like you and I are around, there may be other investors too that dabble in, the, in this space, they're gonna to continue to fund a lot of security companies, right? Okay. But anyways, digressing back to how do you keep your, how do you manage or wrap your head around the companies? I have to break into four different very distinct buckets. Mm -hmm. And I'll kind of go left to right. You have a company that's really a, a product feature. Mm. You have a company that is providing a solution to solve one problem and one problem very, very well. You have a company that we would categorize into what is a mini platform. And what a mini platform is, is a company that's solving three to five unique problems, often representing three to five unique vendors in an organization's environment or in their environment and on the roadmap. Mm. And you have mega platforms. Mega platforms will kind of put aside. Those are the buyers or the acquirers of all of the below, okay. right? Wipro perhaps could be one, but more traditional ones would be like a Symantec or a FireEye or a Palo Alto or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So we'll kind of push those aside, right? Mm -hmm. We're left with three other categories. And so now kind of starting back at product feature. Product feature is the most dangerous place for an investor to dabble. And it's, I would argue, it's equally if not more dangerous for a CISO to mm -hmm. dabble in this area. But it's extremely confusing, all right? Because we would argue or we would submit that 80 to 85% of all of the 3,500 plus or minus companies that are out there are actually product features today. Okay. And if you go to Israel, I'll argue that 90 to 95% of all companies in Israel are really product features today. What's a product feature? Product feature is solving some unique problem mm -hmm. that their initial investors think is a problem that a real company should be solving or a standalone company rather should be solving that their founders think and the customers that they have think that when you go unravel and figure out their initial customers, they're actually early adopter customers that are either reacting to an incident or they're react responding to something that happened that's unique to them, or they're just very, very forward thinking and they're willing to take on new challenges and work on the engines and the phrase kind of, of security. Yet whenever you go to the mainstream buyer, the mainstream customer, they look at it and say, that's really cool. As soon as Palo Alto offers that as a feature, I'll buy it, <laughs> right? Okay. And there's a ton of that that happens, yeah. right? And so 
that's a that's the danger area. I think it's a danger area for you and me as we think mm -hmm. about investing. It's a danger area for security teams as they think about becoming customers. And then you have the point solution, which we can grow really big companies. You know, we were early investors in Silence, and we went from zero to hundred million in gap revenue, solving one problem and one problem very well. Mm -hmm. And then we started adding on additional features. And as you add on additional features and capabilities, you move into the mini platform category, where mm -hmm. that's kind of the holy grail. I don't mm -hmm. know about you, but that's where I'm looking to invest in companies where. Either the day I invest, they you know they could go displace one, two, three vendors, or they have a clear roadmap if they continue to operate as a standalone company, how they can take over and displace more and more vendors as a mini platform. Now, the to over rotate a little bit or to expand on the mini platform, we're like, okay, you said three to five unique problems. Well, what if I find a company that can solve ten? I'd say, run, boy, run, actually, because I don't believe that a venture-backed or a growth, a growth stage company actually can solve more than three to five without allowing a product feature or a point solution to start encroaching on their space. Okay. Or for that matter, maybe even one of the big boys to innovate mm. in that space a little bit. Just because you can only fight so many battles with limited number of venture or growth dollars. Mm. And so we, when we start seeing companies that are really boiling the ocean and doing too much, that's also something where we kind of pause. There's probably always the exception that proves the rule where a mile wide and an inch deep is actually good enough for some space. But over time, I do believe that depth becomes more and more important. That's very insightful. In this context, uh, what does best of breed versus all-in-one mean, both from a customer adoption standpoint as well as from a product vendor standpoint? Right? Yeah. So how are choices being made today? I mean, there there are... CISOs, my former peers, that do really focus on kind of all-in-one. You know, they want the consolidated vendor approach. Yeah. The issue is, is, uh, and I'm speaking about like kind of Fortune 500, yeah. Global 2000 yeah. companies, yeah. okay? Yeah. So let's not go into the, yeah. the, the broader business landscape than that. That's just not my background. Hmm. But if we think about it in that context, let me just talk about like us real quickly to give you some factual numbers and I'll, I'll answer your question. One of the things that we've done is like ClearSkies, we put together a CISO board of advisors in 16 different industries, think one of the three largest companies in each one of those industries with the CISO that's kind of known in that industry to be really leaning into adopting emer emerging early stage security technologies into their program, knowing if they don't do that, they're putting their company at risk and subsequently their job at risk because they're just, they need more innovation faster. And so as we think about our CISO board of advisors, every single one of them has 50 to 175 unique security technologies deployed today. Mm -hmm. The holy grail of what I would like to be able to do is to try to help those companies go from 50 to 35 and 175 to 125 and kind of reduce the number of vendors. The reality of it is, is it's growing mm. um, or it's stable at best. And that's kind of through this mini platform category and maybe some legacy roll off with next gen replacement, but we're not seeing that number go down. Now, what I would hypothesize, and I don't know this for a fact, right? And I'm sure someone's gonna listen to this and say I'm wrong is even whenever you go and you find someone that thinks that they're using the all-in-one solution, they went with a standardized platform, I bet you they still have 50 to 175 technologies. Instead, they, as opposed to having 175, they might have 150, which might be a good thing. Mm. The bottom line is, is if you're a big company, you have a lot of security technologies deployed, mm. right? Whether you realize it or not. And I'm not aware, at least, of any mega platform today that can be the all-encompassing one solution. And so... I do think that there is some merit and there's some definitely roll-up strategies of some of the bigger guys right now. They're, they're making some smart moves hmm. and where you can get operational efficiencies and it fits your environment, it makes sense. I, for one, however, built my entire career, Nokia, Equifax, and, and Blackstone, 
around honing in and focusing on the emerging earlier stage companies that can adapt with me and can iterate quickly with me uh, and can help keep my program of what I believe to be a more progressive state. But that's not for everybody mm. necessarily. But I do think that the leading CISOs kind of the biggest organizations today, and this probably wasn't true five years ago, are leaning more towards the emerging side today hmm. than they're leaning more towards adopting the bigger platforms. Okay. Just because it's really, really hard to innovate. Like I told you earlier, that mini platform, you can't you start doing more than three to five things, then you start like losing your innovation because you're fighting too many battles on too many fronts at once. Right, right. So my takeaway from this, what you said was, you can, the all-in-one players are kind of versus best of breeds, kind of a relative concept, right? You cannot be completely all-in-one or you cannot be completely best of breed, but you kind of have an all-in-one strategy, but then you have 150 more companies. It's always, a, but let's think about it. How many firewall vendors are out there, right? Yeah. I'm not going to plug any of them, but there's only a handful of them out there that you would ever think to have, yeah. right? Yeah. Each one of those firewall vendors is a platform also. You know, you have a best in breed firewall out there that can offer a lot more things than just a firewall, whether you like it or not. The question is, is and you're probably using other products from them. It's mm. built into, you know, you might even know it. It's built yeah. into the firewall actually yeah. too, right? Yeah. And you might make some decisions to actually use some of some of the things that they bought or they built also over the years, most likely bought. Mm. But then at some point in time, you draw the line and you start working with the startup or the growth company or whatever, or the MSSP that's delivering some portion of your program or whatever it may be, because... Regardless of how big the platform is, it's not all in one. It's only solving some of your network needs, but not all of your network security needs. Right, right. Now I'm really probably going to say something I shouldn't say. <laughs> but like, I really can't point to a vendor today mm. that truly protects the endpoint and the network effectively. There's ones that do a really good job on the endpoint and try to do the network, not so well. They do a really good job on the network and they do the endpoint, not so well. There's some companies that say the endpoint's good enough because I have such good network security controls or vice versa. But if you want to have the best endpoint and the best network, you're probably having two different vendors, hmm. no matter what. You know, on a different sort of a discussion, Jay, what we believe is with the advent of software development models being changed, right, and more DevOps type of and responsibility coming more towards developers, mm -hmm. we believe that a central security organization versus the responsibility shifting towards a developer is kind of becoming the trend. So would like to have your point of view on that, first of all. And if so, what does it mean for security vendors and deployment models around it? Yeah, I don't even think that a lot of security people, and I'm not going to point to CISOs right now, but the security professionals more broadly probably fully recognize like what we've put into the developers' hands today and how much of the keys to the front door they control. Like, I got to jump out of here pretty soon because I'm going to run to a board meeting with a company called App Omni. And what App Omni does is it helps secure your SaaS environment, Salesforce, Dropbox, your G Suite, things of that nature, right? And when we look at what they're doing, it's like, how many security teams have access to Salesforce? And if they did, how would they know if this configuration is risky or this permission is risky or not? They wouldn't, right? But let's just say they did, hypothetically. What we found is in App Omni's working with our customers, many of the things that we're detecting, a developer is uploading in code. Mm. They're changing permissions to this API so they can connect to this third-party service. It's not visible in the GUI. It's only uploaded through code. And by the way, code gets pushed four times a day, right? Absolutely. And no one has any idea that's happening until we uncover it. So like, it's something as simple or is widely used as Salesforce, but it's a standardized platform. You forget custom and all this kind of stuff, right? It's something 
I, for one, until we started getting smarter on the space about a year ago or whatever, I never thought about it. Now we've introduced this company to a number of CISOs and the reaction's like, why did you introduce this company to me? You just create a ton more work because I realize <laughs> I've been neglecting a massive risk in my organization for the past 15 years, right? And on one hand, it's touching your question around the developers. What I'm trying to do is shine a light mm. on like, it's even probably a bigger problem. This is not like a movement to DevOps, right? We've actually been functioning in this way probably for 10 or 15 years. We're just starting to come to grips of what's really been happening in reality, right? And with the movement to the cloud in particular, and now that we're losing control around a lot of the network-centric controls and the host-based controls that we traditionally relied on, because we don't control the infrastructure so much anymore, if we do, there's limits to what we control, I think it's shining a lot of lights on it. So that's how we have been operating and the way we're going. Now, to answer your question, like a lot more laser-focused way, we fully agree with the fact that like this movement to DevOps are pushing a lot of capabilities and decision-making into people's hands who traditionally didn't have that authority and haven't been trained to and we can't expect to do it, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's the reason why you're seeing this breadth of all kinds of different technologies in different categories that have arose to try to help protect runtime applications and various applications, security, new methodologies, and all this kind of stuff. But I will tell you this, the thing I believe, and I'm sure there's, there's the organizations where this is, they're, they're the exception that prove the rule, okay? But the general rule is, in our opinion at least, if you disrupt the DevOps, the developers' experience, you ask them to do something that they wouldn't normally do, you need to change their process in some kind of way, I think you're gonna lose the battle. And the reason being is because the security officer only has so many spades that they can play with the development team or the DevOps team or whatever. And ultimately speaking, they are moving the business forward and adding new features and, and everything. And we're going to be seen as the no guys if we try to make them do something and the squeaky wheel is going to get the grease or whatever the, the right saying is, right? And so we fundamentally believe that you have to deploy solutions that don't change the experience of the DevOps team that don't ask me to do something extra. And that's probably going to be some exceptions, like I said, but I don't want to plug companies or whatever, but that's the reason why we made our investment in Zero North because it doesn't change the DevOps developers' experience whatsoever, yet can help secure the DevOps environment. And I think that's the right approach where, as we are thinking about what's happening right now in the DevOps world, is that I'm not a big fan of the DevSecOps term at all, personally. I think that it sends the wrong message. I think in turn, what we, as security practitioners, what we need to be doing is we need to be securing DevOps. But DevSecOps, I'm not a big fan of that, but we need to provide security transparently to the DevOps world to enable them to be able to do their job as opposed to putting yourself in the middle of it. So with all of this, are there any particular category or set of categories that excite you most? And I know this is a changing paradigm but at this point what are, what is it that's i don't think of it i don't know if you're asking categories like Gartner domains or momentum domains or whatever like i don't think about investing that way at all personally because we don't do theme-based investing that way we could but we just haven't mm. i'll tell you the drivers that the, the real strong tailwinds behind our investment thesis is right number one is we're investing in the number one cybersecurity problem that every single company has in the world today big or small and that's the people problem I have yet to meet a single CISO that has said, I got all the people I ever need with the right talent at the right price and the right locations with the right skill set. that it's a good cultural fit, right? So when we talk about the million unfilled jobs going to three and a half million, it's a way more compounded problem when you factor into all those things I just now said, mm. right? 
And so if we can invest in the next generation piece of technology that can allow you to take XYZ control you're managing that requires 10 people to run it today and you can deploy a next gen that requires two people to run it, I can take and repurpose those eight people somewhere else. Or quite honestly, I probably don't have all 10 of those seats filled anyway, so I'm really not operating at the efficiency as I think I am. I'm just telling myself I'm doing a good job. Mm. We think that every single aspect of a cybersecurity or information security or risk management program is right to be replaced if you can help limit the number of people required to manage controls effectively. I think that's one. That's one general thesis. What does that mean? That is a very, very direct implication that we're very focused on prevention first. So you'll see a very strong theme of preventative first, falling back secondarily to detect and respond as opposed to throwing up our arms and saying, oh, we can't prevent it, so therefore we're just going to lean in with detect and respond first. Detect and respond by nature requires more people, hmm. right? And so that's, that's number one. Number two, we fundamentally do not believe, and I don't care the youngest person is going to listen to this podcast, but for the rest of the youngest person that's listening to this podcast career, or career to be, if you're even younger than you're not working today, I think that companies, they don't move to the cloud, but they'll be moving to the cloud for the rest of our careers. Unless you're born in the cloud, and don't get me wrong, I'm probably sitting in the wrong city to make that statement because there's probably plenty of people here who are born in the cloud or might, might challenge that in San Francisco. But once you get out of this area of the world, and particularly you go back home with me to the East Coast, there are IT architectural design reasons why there will always be on-prem. AWS wouldn't come out with an on-prem solution if that wasn't an IT design, mm. right? And so what does that mean? That, that implication there is we're looking for security solutions that can help secure the hybrid environment because we think that for the rest of our careers, at least for the rest of our, this fund, that's for sure, if not well beyond <laughs> that, we will need to protect the hybrid environment. And so that has some implications, like we typically don't invest in hardware. It's probably a smart move. It's, that's kind of staying the obvious right now. But more importantly, it's investing in teams that have thought about the hybrid environment, that the design from the very beginning has taken that into effect. And we're not building it for the three big cloud vendors and trying to port it on-prem or building it for on-prem and trying to port it to AWS. You know what I mean? Like. That just doesn't work. Hmm. And so it's hybrid by design, if hmm. I can coin that phrase, as opposed to privacy or security by design. I don't know. And then the last thing I'll, I'll mention, and then I'll shut up for a second unless you ask the next question, is we've met with, let's say, 1,500-ish security companies in the past couple of years, and every single one of them talked about their ML, AI, or analytics capabilities. And I can tell you that probably somewhere in the single digit percentage of them, if you were to rip out their story around AI, ML, or analytics, it did not change the, the, the true security efficacy of what the service they were delivering. It's more marketing hype, or it's this feature over here, or whatever. But when you strip that out, and actually the company no longer functions properly, it can be massively disruptive, meaning that there's a ton of leverage. And we think that we are going to see more and more of that, but as much hype as there is around those words, and if I mention those words to a CISO, their eyes roll back of their head, just like if I mentioned cloud to a CISO, their eyes roll in the back of their head today. But we think that there's a lot on the come in that space, despite the over-marketing hype of it right now. So it's people designed for hybrid and effective use of ML AI. Probably, I think that's a good summary. And interspersed with your original thing that it's, it should not be a feature. It, it has to be a mini platform in that direction. Yeah, I, and I, I guess the only thing I'll add is with the prevention first. With the prevention first. For, focus. From a 
people standpoint, like you said, there's always a dearth of people from trained people in the cybersecurity domain. Does what kind of impact does it have on delivery models for cybersecurity customers? What's your view about MSSP world, the managed security services provider world, or any other that you think will evolve to help that cause? So everyone's super familiar with SaaS. I think the SaaS model, which was a big no-no in security for a long time, Qualys or others tried to help change that in the mid-2000s. And today, I know CISOs that if you tell them they have to deploy even like a Docker container or image or whatever on-prem, like they're not going to buy it, right? They don't want to be in the infrastructure management aspect of, of security. So they're 100% SaaS. So that's something that we've completely flipped the script on. Now, some of your large financials might feel a little differently about that, some of that today, but for the most part, most industries have started to embrace that. But take it one step further. This is a theme that we've seen starting to happen for a while. I'm going to kind of say I think we're going to see more of it. That being said, five years ago I made this statement, and we haven't seen that much more of it, but we've seen some companies where it's software with a service, right? Mm -hmm. So you... At its core, you're getting technology, but there is a service component behind it, whether it's a SOC-like function or a hand-holding function or a remediation function or whatever it may be that's empowering that software service to be more effective. Not quite full on MSSP necessarily, it's not I'm talking about, but that hybrid gland, and I think we're starting to see that. There's definitely some very large companies that are providing that capability that it's helping security organizations get more leverage when they have lack of staff, mm -hmm. right? And then definitely MSSP. I mean, I think like next generation kind of MSSPs, the, the ones that don't have a lot of legacy debt have reinvented themselves or have started more recently or are forward leaning in, not just with the big boys, but with emerging tech or whatever. I think there's a ton. And that's why you're seeing all these MDR players and mm. things of that nature too, you know, kind of come into play because people simply don't have enough people capacity. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to outsource your security operations center entirely, but certain aspects of your security program can be delivered as a service through an MSS-like function, I think, very effectively. Jay, can you talk a little bit about your anti-portfolio, things that you have passed on and have regretted ever since? That's a, that's a great question. I don't necessarily want to call out specific vendors. I'll, I'll call out one vendor. I had the opportunity years ago to invest in the pre-IPO round of FireEye. And even though people are down on FireEye stock right now, it still would have given me a 3X today. So that was one. But we, in general, I would tell you that if I think about companies that are more recently, particularly the past few years in my anti-portfolio, this is more advice to CEOs and founders. There's a number of companies that I really think we could have worked closely together. And they came out of the gate really hot, thinking that they're going to get these crazy high-flying valuations, mm. right? And we probably talked to them at, at the beginning of their fundraising stage. They're like, yeah, we're going to get a 35 pre on a pre-revenue company or something of that nature. And we're first-time CEO and founding team, by the way. And we haven't really written any code either. And they end up getting funded, you know, let's say for something much less than that. And the much less than that is like is something that we would have done the deal for or even maybe paid more for. And yet they didn't come back around, we discounted them because they had high-flying expectations and maybe someone's going to give it to them. And then they felt like they burned the bridge. They don't come back around and we don't think to go back around. And this is a common theme that I see. And so my advice to entrepreneurs would be like to not get ahead of your skis and the highest valuation isn't necessarily the, the, best, uh, the best thing. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a lot of those companies though that you look back on and you're like, wow, I could have done that deal and I don't know how I, how I missed that necessarily. And you do have a little bit of buyer's remorse, but with every one of those companies, 
that you look back on and you say, oh, I wish I would have been able to do that and I somehow missed it. I guarantee you like that kind of discipline, even though it ruled out that one company, probably saved your tail, you know, on, on 15, 20 or more companies that, you know, would have been a bad investment though. Of course, of course. So last question, Jay. I'm sure listeners out there will hear this interview and think about how they would shape their product ideas and potentially get into the radar of an investor like you. So any piece of advice that you would have for founders, would-be founders in the cybersecurity space? Yeah, I mean, uh, since I'm in, the, uh, I'm in San Francisco, so I guess I'm in Silicon Valley, but I'm close enough. I'll do a Silicon Valley episode cliche. I don't know if it's actually in the episode or not, but it should be because it's so <laughs> stupid, but it's really true. My advice to founders is like we invest into three T's. Here we go. Team, technology, and TAM, total addressable market. So, And I think for us, the number one thing in the three of those is team. I know that the other people out there will focus on the TAM first or the technology because the team's replaceable and for us, the team's not replaceable. When we're investing in an early stage company or even investing in a late stage company, we can afford to make a few changes in the team, but the core team needs to be there, needs to be really solid, needs to be very cohesive. And the reason why is because the one thing I'll guarantee you that will happen in every single startup I've ever worked with as a customer or as an investor over 20 years is that things don't go according to plan. And so when they don't go according to the plan, you need to have a solid team that can fail, iterate, iterate, fail, fail, iterate, succeed, right? And that might happen in a week. It might happen in a month. It might happen in a quarter. It might happen in a year. It might happen in over a year. And those are never good situations. But as long as they can persevere and stay through, see it through, and can rally together as one unit and have a good cohesive team, and then we also backing that with a good technology, and we have definitely a TAM that is reasonably sized, I think you can build a successful company. But people can't stomach that, they can't work together, egos prevail, humility is, is not in their vocabulary, they're not able to take advice or to be coached, they're not willing to ask for advice or listen. These are fundamental building blocks for failure, if you ask me. All right, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Jay. And yeah. thanks for your time and your insights. We'll wish you all the best and we'll take it from here. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you, man. Enterprise Masters is produced, recorded, and mixed by BSC. To learn more about how to harness the power of storytelling to grow your company, go to www.vscpr.com. Thanks for listening.